Ever since Jesus revealed the Trinity, great minds in the church have tried to explain the Trinity to us. And of course it can't be done because the Trinity is a mystery that is beyond anything you and I could even begin to fathom. And yet at first glance, maybe it doesn't seem to be so great. We look at it and say, yeah, we believe in three persons and one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. What's so mysterious about that? Until we unpack it and look at exactly what it is that we do believe. First of all, each member of the Trinity is totally and completely God in himself. The Father is not one-third of God. He is totally and completely God. Jesus is totally and completely God himself, not just a third of it. And the same with the Holy Spirit. So they're all totally and completely God in themselves. Put all of them together, and you have just as much God afterwards as you had before. We don't have three times as much godliness. We can speak about each member of the Trinity individually, but they need each other to exist. Without one of them, the whole Trinity would fall apart. So there are three who are equal but not multiplied in their value by being together. They can stand independently, but they need each other for existence. Is your mind totally on tilt by now? It should be, because it's meant, it's something that's even beyond anything you and I could even begin to fathom. And the more we unpack the mystery, the more mysterious it becomes. And over the years, there have been many people who have rejected the Trinity because they said, oh, that makes no sense. You know, I just can't understand it. And quite frankly, the fact that it completely boggles our mind is one of the reasons why I know it's true. Because nobody would make that up. We needed Jesus to reveal the Trinity to us. When people make up gods, what do they make up? They make up Jupiter, Mars, gods of volcanoes that want virgins being thrown in, and if you don't give them sacrifice, they're going to destroy people, people who largely lived in fear of their gods. Nobody makes up the Trinity. And the Trinity is God himself is all goodness, all essence, all existence, all knowledge, all beauty, all truth, all love. And that is the gift of God. And the Trinity, by being love, if we look at it, naturally needs several members to it. Just by looking at love, we can understand why the Trinity has to exist. First of all, love is not merely a feeling for someone else. It's not an identity. It's an expression that is poured out to another. Love is a total gift of self. And for God to be loved, naturally there had to be someone for him to give his own love to totally and completely. But there also had to be somebody to receive that love and give his love back totally and completely. We can see it in, imagine a young woman who is head over heels in love with a young man who feels absolutely nothing whatsoever in return for her. Is she happy? Does she say, I don't care if he loves me back, just as long as I can love him, I don't care that he's fallen in love with another lady and he's marrying her, that doesn't matter to me, as long as I can always love him? Of course not. That's painful for her. An unrequited love is a very painful thing. No, just by nature, the love we pour out needs to be received and reciprocated. And that happened in God. The love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, that love between them is the Holy Spirit. And we can see how with that, each one we can talk about uniquely, but they are the equal of the other, even though they are different. And in that, we can understand the beauty of the Trinity and its model of love for us. And it's not a mystery to be explained 
but a mystery to be lived every day. And you and I, each and every one of us, live that mystery of the Trinity. Every time we understand that God is loving us completely and calling us to love him back completely, giving ourselves totally and completely to him, we're in that loving exchange. And through that, he gives us tremendous gifts. And so all of our lives are meant to to find the mystery of the Trinity and live it out in our lives. And God calls all of us to a unique way in knowing him and serving him. But today I'd like to look for a few minutes specifically at one of those ways, one of our sacraments, which the majority of you have either entered into or will enter into in the future. And that is the beautiful sacrament of marriage. Marriage is one of the most beautiful images of the Holy Trinity that we have. In seeing a loving couple dedicated to themselves in their marriage and caring for their children, we see the Holy Trinity very much at work in a beautiful and physical way. But how is that? How does a marriage show us the beauty of the Trinity? Well, First, we have to go back to that image I was talking about of the the love of God, the Father for the Son in the Holy Spirit. And our theology tells us that when the Father gave of himself of love to the Son, who received that love, gave his own in return in the union of the Holy Spirit, somehow that brought about creation, life as we know it. The love in God brought about our life. So we are a direct result of the love of God. And when a husband and wife give themselves to each other in their marriage, they pour out their love totally and completely to the other, receive the other one's love and give theirs in return. Total outpouring, totally, total abandoning of love of one to the other. And if nature runs its course, the result of that outpouring of their love is a human life. They conceive a child from God. And notice that it is not the couple who makes the life. God makes the life. No woman who is pregnant gets up in the morning, showers, dresses, has her coffee, and says, okay, what are we going to do today? Why don't we make the fingers here? We'll put them on the hands, knit everything together. Is it all working all right? Of course not. She marvels at the miracle taking place in her that has already begun in her even before she even knew she was pregnant. God is creating the new life through the husband and the wife. And that means he is drawing a husband and wife into union with him at his very essence of being love and truth itself. They're being brought into the most precious moment of God, God creating new life. And so therefore, by their marriage, by their love, they are brought into one with him. And I wonder how many people in the world realize that the Catholic Church teaches when a husband and wife give themselves to each other intimately in their marriage, they are receiving tremendous graces, uniting themselves with God and leading their souls to heaven. I don't think most people realize we think that, but that is in fact what we believe. And each and every one of you in marriage who are here who are married, even if you've already raised your children and they're long moved out of the house, nevertheless, Think about the beautiful mystery that God gave you or is giving you in your life. And that is that he has called the two of you to be one with him so that your love has now become part of his love. And through your love, he creates a new life. And the husband and wife are allowing God to draw them completely into himself as our whole lives are meant to be. Every one of us is meant to come before the Lord and say, Lord, draw me into yourself. 
He baptizes us in him, gives us his body and blood in the Eucharist, in which, another way in which he draws us into himself. And in marriage, you who are in marriage, who are in the beautiful sacrament, have received a wonderful and awesome and sacred gift from God, that beautiful ability to participate with him in his very work of creation. Obviously, that is why we honor marriage as one of our seven sacraments, and we guard it so carefully, because it is such a beautiful gift to the world. And like any great gift, if it's misused, the results will be catastrophic in society. We guard the marriage and the seal of the marriage, the sexual act, not because it's, you know, we want to keep people away from it or deny them anything pleasurable, but rather to respect and protect and defend something very precious that God has given us. Just like having a precious piece of art in a museum. It's guarded and protected so that everybody can see it and appreciate the beauty of it. The same thing happens to us with our understanding of marriage. That marriage and the seal of marriage, the sexual act, are something very precious. They are a union with God. And naturally, its nature tells us that we must offend it and not just dismiss it lightly and just make of it you know, a simple tool for pleasure or anything like that. So anything that would violate that union with God is a violation of the very seal of one of our sacraments. So we say that every sexual act between a husband and wife must respect love and life. It must be an outpouring of love of one for the other, leaving open to God the possibility or at least the natural processes by which God would create a new life should he choose to do so. So, a couple who would enter into that intimate act, that is the seal of the covenant of marriage, who are not in fact married, well, they're taking something from marriage, they're entering into that, but they have not made the commitment to each other yet. So they are not in the bond of marriage, and they are not sealing their love to each other. So therefore, it is a violation of the dignity of the sexual act and why we teach that it is sinful. Or if the two people involved, one of them or maybe both of them, are married to somebody else, adultery. Well, of course, they're violating the promise and, uh, that they made to the other person to keep them solely for themselves. That they would be just this man and this woman and no third person would enter into that. They're seriously violating that covenant. So adultery cannot be uh, justified and, of course, is a very serious sin. Then imagine we have a couple who are perfectly validly married before God and in love with each other, but they introduce some form of artificial contraception to prevent a new life from being created. Well, what are they doing there? They're basically saying to God, no, God, stay out. We don't want you here. Right now, it's just the two of us. We don't want any of your creation going on here. We'll let you know, maybe three or four years from now, when we're ready to have a child, we will let you in. But we'll be the ones deciding when we want to have the child and not you. So God, stay out, and we'll keep you out until we decide we want you in. A violent offense to the very essence and nature and dignity of what marriage is all about, and in fact, completely contradicts, reverses the whole nature of marriage. That marriage is meant to draw two people together into God and instead is forcing God out and denying him entrance into a place where he rightly belongs. That's why the church you know, uh, says that artificial contraception is sinful, because it violates the very essence and nature of what a husband and wife promise each other on their wedding day and are doing every time they are together. 
or if it should be that the two people who are entering into this act are of the same gender. Well, there's nothing that they can do in any of their act to make that open to the creation of a new life. And so we cannot bring anything that is of the order of sealing the covenant of marriage into any other type of situation whereby it is trying to replicate or make a facsimile of what the sexual act is meant to be, but in fact is not the real thing. And so that is why the church, using common language, has said that no, gay marriage is sinful and we cannot condone it. But in our world today, of course, we end up losing the argument in the eyes of a lot of people who right away accuse us of something that society does right away, that because we say no to it, we're hate-filled, that we hate gay people and things like that, that they say. And you know very well, we don't hate anybody. Unfortunately, that's the, the, uh, the card that people look to right away whenever they want to make an argument. They just claim hate and discrimination. And nobody wants to be accused of being discriminatory. Nobody wants to be accused of being hateful. So when we hear that, far, sadly, far too many people say, oh, well, then I can't be hateful. I don't want to be discriminating. So therefore, I must allow it. Well, first of all, that argument is not true. And secondly, it's not fair. It's not fair to anyone to automatically throw the hate card out. If you don't agree with me, you're hate-filled. First of all, that violates or that takes away from true hate speech. There are situations out there of people who truly are saying hateful things that will lead to a lot of harm to other people. And we need to address that. But it does it no good when we just use that for anything. It's kind of a cheap shot, if you will, a way to try to quickly win the argument without any dialogue, without any discussion. And we could use it in return, just right around to them and do the same thing. They say to us, well, you don't agree with me, so therefore you're hate-filled. Well, we could say to them, all right, well, you don't agree with me, therefore you are hate-filled towards me, and you are discriminating against me, so therefore we want you being silenced. And if everybody did that with everyone who has a difference of opinion, nobody would be allowed to say anything. If the only thing, if anything out of our mouth that disagrees with someone else is automatically hate speech, how can we talk? How can we have dialogue? And how can we have peace in the world? No, there are certain words that have to be saved only for the times when they truly mean what they are because they're highly emotionally charged words. Hate crimes and hate speech is one of them. Bullying and abuse are others, that they must be saved only for those times when they mean exactly what they are and never abuse just to try to quickly win an argument to prey on people's emotions and make them feel, oh, well, I don't want to be considered hate-filled. So don't allow people to do that to you. Don't let them tell you you're hate-filled. Or say, no, I'm not hate-filled. I love you very much. I just disagree with you. Whatever happened to being able to respectfully disagree and say, I may not agree with you, but I respect and affirm your dignity and I still love you as a person. And to prove that we don't hate gay people, which unfortunately is one of the things that young people believe, and every study that talks about how, why young people are leaving the faith, one of the big reasons a lot of them use is that the church hates gay people. And you know very well, we don't hate anybody. And it's proof of that. Nobody was, when the AIDS crisis came along, no one was more vociferous than the Catholic Church about the sinfulness of homosexual acts. Yet, at the same time, nobody operated more beds for AIDS patients than the Catholic Church. So we hate the sin, yes, but we love the sinner. And sometimes the world can't see both of them together. They think, to disagree with me is to hate me. And we say, no, I love you, 
but I disagree with you, and I don't think what you're doing is leading you to union with Christ. So in whatever it may be, all of our morality, not just sexual morality, but all types of things, I hope you can see through this that God, the church doesn't just make up moral teachings. The Pope and the bishops don't just get together and say, well, let's talk about it. You know, is this going to be moral or not? Everything we do is part of a completely consistent system of of constant ethics, constant morals that one feeds the other, that helps us grow in union with God. And anything that the church teaches is is morally good is something that is leading us into union with God, allowing him to call us into one with him, regardless of what vocation or what walk of life that is. And anything that the church teaches is sinful is because God has said that leads us away from the union with him. It does not draw us in. Rather, it pushes us further away from his loving embrace. And we cannot change that just because some people don't like it or in We can have compassion on someone and feel sorry for them and say, well, you know, they can't enter into, for example, the valid sacrament of marriage, so we'll give them something to do so that they can at least feel good. No, we can't do that. To change morals would be to imply a change in the very essence and nature of God himself. And that is a metaphysical impossibility. God is the immutable one. God cannot change. So either we'd be claiming that something changed in God, that something that used to be considered immoral is now moral, which is impossible, or we'd be saying we have power now to change God, that we have the ability to alter him so that what we want now will be moral before God. And if we were to do that, we're flipping the roles. We're making ourselves God and God the creature. And he is the one who formed us. We don't form him. And it's not easy in our world, certainly, because the challenge that the Lord reminds us that when we go out with the gospel message, not everyone's going to like it, and some people will be right, very angry with us. The Lord never said it would be easy, whether it's to teach it or to live it out in our lives. In fact, did he not say, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow in my footsteps each and every day? But while there are times in following the Lord may be difficult, we have to break things in this world that we want to hold on to and let go. Once we do and allow the Lord to absorb us into himself, we find the peace that only he can bring. And there are beautiful gifts out there for different people in different vocations. The sexual act for married couples, that is God's gift to them. But nobody has the right to grasp and claim for himself something that is not his own gift. God did not call me to marriage, so therefore I have no right to go out and try to grasp the gift that God gave to married people for myself any more than anyone who was not called to be a priest would have the right to go out and grasp the right to celebrate Mass and change the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. That's not God's gift to them. But no gift has the monopoly that if you don't have this gift, then you won't know peace or happiness. Unfortunately, far too many people in the world think that way. There are many different ways of serving God. And each way has its own unique gift that brings us into union with God, whatever that vocation, whatever that may calling, calling may be. There are lots of unmarried people who have maybe just never found the right person to marry or have just said, I'm not the right person to marry because I could never really give myself in a giving to another person. I'm too free-spirited for that. Does that mean that they can't find happiness? Well, of course not. God has a way for everyone to be happy. All we have to do is know what he wants us to do and live it out. 
Sadly, there's been too much of people in the world today trying to grab other people's call to happiness as their own and saying, I will never be happy until I can have the gift that, someone, that God has given to someone else. Instead, may we all pray to know the gift that God is giving us and not come before the Lord and ask him to make sure I can have the gift that I want him to give me, but rather to say, Lord, you know why you created me. Show me the gift you want to give me. What is the vocation to which you call me? And help me to find you and the joy of serving you in that vocation, even if it doesn't include things that are given to other people. There's so much... uh, a resentment of other people in the world today of what they have rather than what God is giving us. If we could only just look to God and say, Lord, give me the gifts that you want to give me. Help me to see them and help me to carry out that life. They would have great peace. And so today, my friends, let us pray that the Lord will help us to know that every one of us is called into the loving embrace of God in the Trinity, that we are called to be brought into total union with him but each of us with a different vocation, with a different calling. And may we not worry about having the gifts of somebody else's vocation and trying to grasp things for ourselves that are not rightly ours, but rather simply turn to the Lord and say, Lord, show me the gifts you want to give me and help me to be content with that. Because knowing if I am living the life that you have called me to live, whatever gifts you choose to give me will fill me, will bring me so much peace and happiness, and will bring us all into total and complete union with our Holy Trinity of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. May Jesus Christ be praised, now and forever.